Okay, grab your Bibles. If you haven't got them open, turn to chapter 14 and verse 1. I know the answer to this question is yes, but did you notice as Paul began chapter 14, as he begins to launch into speaking about tongues and prophecies, he will not let the Corinthians forget what he has just said. Rather, he grounds what he has just said as a command that stands over chapter 14. How does chapter 14 begin? With a verse, verse 1, the opening words, pursue love. That's not a suggestion. It's not a nice thought. It doesn't go up with a kitten picture on the back of your toilet door with a verse underneath it. it it's a command to pursue love and earnestly desire the spirituals, especially that you may prophesy. And I'm sure the, sure the Corinthians would have heard the bit about desiring the spirituals, but the 13 verses before this one have all been about love, about love being the priority. Without love, prophecy, tongues, nothing. Those who prophesy are nothing and achieve nothing. So St Paul says, as I open up our thinking on tongues and prophecy, pursue love. And if they don't take Paul's words in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, verse 7 to heart, they're going to miss out on everything as well because he draws that into what he says throughout the chapter as well. Our gifts are given, tongues, prophecy, and all the others, for the common good. And he rams that home, doesn't he, in chapter twelve, verse, tw- sorry, chapter 14, verse 12, and also verse 26. Look at verse 12 with me for a moment. He says, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestation of the spirits, strive to excel in building up the church. Pursue love is a command, but so is strive to excel in building up the church. Working with your gifts for the benefit of others, again, is not an optional extra. Commanded. The same thing in verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation? That's the case. Then the command, let all things be done for building up. It's a command again. In other words, make sure that everything that is done builds others up. If it doesn't, don't do it, is the implication. And it's a corporate command, not just a command for individuals. So we've got to ask, if those, if that's the setting, rather, in which these gifts are talked about, what exactly are the gifts? We're at point three on your outline. I've been putting off defining what tongues and prophecies are up until this morning for a good reason. The good reason is this. Paul just hasn't given us enough information in chapter 12 and 13 to know what they are. They've just been included in lists of gifts. It's only when we get to chapter 14 that we begin to get some of the detail that might help us understand what these gifts are. When we come to chapter 14, Paul doesn't start with, oh, and by the way, let me define prophecy and let me define tongues. What he does is he scatters throughout this chapter clues that will help us work it out. So let's start with speaking in tongues and think about that and pick it up at verse 3. And notice, firstly, that when a person speaks in a tongue, they're speaking to God and not the congregation. Paul says, for the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. And the reason for saying this is simply that no one understands him but he utters mysteries in the spirit. What he's speaking comes in a language that nobody else understands. 
What he's saying, therefore, is a mystery to those around him. Not a mystery in the sense of being, you know, spooky, right? More mystery in the sense of talking with a teenager who can only speak in grunt, right? Yeah. You know what it's like, boys. You've been there. Girls, you've tried to... It hasn't worked, really. Right? It's not a mystery because it's mysterious. It's a mystery because it simply makes no sense. It's unintelligible. And notice as well that the one who speaks, speaks in the Spirit. That is, I take it, he is enabled or she is enabled by the Spirit himself. That is, the same with other gifts. God himself makes it possible for someone to speak in this way. To speak to God in a language that is unintelligible to people, but intelligible to God. Now, because Paul uses the term speaking in a tongue, some have thought that what's on view here is the gifts that were seen at Pentecost, back in Acts chapter 2. But I want to suggest that that is simply not possible. Because what is described in Acts chapter 2 and what is described here are quite different in their character. In Acts chapter 2, verse 6, we read this. At this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And the list of languages is significant, it's vast. Clearly, the gift that Paul is describing here is not the same thing because his comment in chapter 14, verse 3, is that no one understands him. It's not as if the tongue speaker is speaking in the language of the Calathumpians and there just doesn't happen to be a Calathumpian present. It's a little tribe, lost tribe, just in the back blocks of Western Australia. Um, it's not actually, I made that up. Right, so firstly, friends, the Spirit of God enables the one who speaks to speak in a tongue that is the language that God understands and that we don't. Second thing we learn, verse 4. Speaking in a tongue is a very good thing because we discover that speaking in a tongue is personally edifying for the speaker. First of all, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, which in some ways makes speaking in a tongue quite an unusual gift. Unusual because the gifts we're told, chapter 12, verse 7, are for the building up of the body. But here seem, tongues seem in a peculiar way, particular way, to be just building up the individual, which is why Paul can say in verse 5, now I want you all to speak in tongues. That's not a command, it's a wish. So don't let anyone say if you're Christian you have to speak in tongues. He would like it if everybody enjoyed this gift that would build up the individual. And at the end of the chapter, even though he's severely limited the use of tongues within the body, he says in verse 39, so my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. It is a gift from God. It is personally beneficial for those who have it. But notice the end of verse 5. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. Which means as good as tongue speaking is, it's not as good as prophesying. Why? Well, he goes on to say, the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. It's the same thing that's been governing these whole three chapters. Speaking in tongues is a mystery. Unless it interpre it's interpreted, it only builds up the individual, which means uninterpreted, it will never be beneficial to the body in the same way that prophecy is. 
In fact, says Paul, verse 19, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind, five intelligible words, in order to instruct others, than 10,000 in a tongue. Which brings us to the third thing that we can know about speaking in tongues. Thirdly, tongues can be interpreted. Have a look at verse 9, and first you see the problem that speaking in a tongue that isn't interpreted raises. He says, so with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? If you'll be speaking into the air, if you speak Mandarin to me, if you speak any Malaysian language, if you speak anything other than English to me, you will just be speaking into the air. I will nod politely and go, I have no idea what you're saying. That's what's going on here. Verse 10, there are doubtless many different languages in the world and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. Therefore, says Paul, if you want to build each other up, verse 13, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. And the way that Paul speaks about interpretation in verse 27, it's clear that Paul expects that the power to be interpreted is a reality and that it may be that God would provide some with the gift of interpretation. And so, verse 13, tongues will simply sound like gobbledygook unless someone can hear it and then turn what is unintelligible into intelligible words for the benefit of building up the rest of the body. Fourthly, Paul says in verses 20 to 25 that, and this is really quite odd, you probably noticed this bit, that tongues act to turn those who aren't Christians away from Christ rather than draw them near to him. That is, tongues are a sign of the judgment that those who aren't Christians are under. Have a look at verse 21. Paul quotes from Isaiah 28 verses 11 and 12. And what he's doing is he's reminding the Corinthians of God's promise to humiliate Israel, to humiliate his people by having foreigners proclaim the gospel to them in languages that they don't understand because of their hardness of heart. Israel's heart was so hard that God said, I'm going to send foreigners to you. They will speak the gospel to you in their language, and you just won't get it, and that'll be a sign to you that you are outside the kingdom. So hard are their hearts. So he says, in the law it's written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. That is, I'll speak to the people of Israel in those strange tongues, but so hard are their hearts that even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So hard are their hearts that they won't listen And my speaking to them in strange tongues simply confirms them in their unbelief. It leaves them thinking that I, the God of the universe, am simply a babbler. Blah, 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 blah. So verse 22 says, Paul, thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. In the same way, when those who are not yet Christian hear you speaking in tongues, it won't bring them to faith. It'll confirm them in their unbelief. They'll hear gobbledygook, they'll think we're idiots, and they won't pursue Christ. Tongues will act as a sign to keep them out of the kingdom. 
So verse 23, when they hear you speak in a tongue, will they not say, you are out of your minds? Answer, that's exactly what they'll say. Yes. Friends, tongues are not God's secret weapon for world evangelism, as some would claim. Quite the contrary, they confound. Let me share uh, three reflections. Firstly, a number of friends of mine have been given the gift of speaking in tongues and I know that they are personally edified by having this gift. So if you've been given the gift, don't despise it. Give thanks to God for it. Don't hide it away. Use it. Benefit from it. Allow yourself to be built up for it. Uh, build up with it. And if God has given you the gift of interpretation, then the body may well benefit from it as well. Secondly, let me say that it's not a gift that I've been given. When I was a teenager, a whole stack of my friends had been given this gift. I remember lying in bread at night, uh, praying, asking God desperately to give me this gift. I remember going to one particular uh, prayer meeting one night at John Blackstone's place. And uh, when my fr- friends who had the gift spoke in tongues, I faked it. Right? So desperate was I to sound like them and to have this gift, I just made it up. Right? That kind of jealousy has no part in the body. Some people are given the gift, others aren't. And neither does the reverse belong in the body either. The sort of pressure that seeks to squash the gift of tongues out of the body's life. Whether that pressure comes from wrongly claiming that this gift died out in the first century, as some do, and there is no scriptural support for that at all, or whether it's through the personal demonising that occurs in some circles to those who have this gift. Friends, tongues are a good gift from God. We're forbidden from forbidding their use. Let's have a think about prophecy. What does chapter 14 say about prophecy? Come back to the beginning of the chapter, verse 1. Firstly, prophecy is something that we as a body ought to earnestly desire as part of our life together. Remember, earnestly desiring the gift is not for myself, but so that we as a group have this gift. Paul says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spirituals, especially that you may prophesy. There are few gifts that the church is especially to earnestly desire, which means that prophecy has a special place. Secondly, whatever prophecy is, it is, verse 3, a gift for the body because it's the body who are being addressed. Verse 3, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to the people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Prophecy involves speaking to the congregation and the result of the words that are spoken are that the people are three things, built up, encouraged and comforted or consoled which is why prophecy is so much greater than tongues, because prophecy always encourages, always builds, always consoles. It is always for others. It is always accessible to those who hear it. So if someone says that they have a prophecy and it doesn't build up, encourage or console, it probably isn't prophecy. Thirdly, prophecy can have a great impact on those who are not yet Christians. Have a look at verse 24. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he'll worship God and declare that God really is among you. 
Prophecy can clearly connect with the heart of the unbeliever and the words that are spoken can cut them to the heart, convicting them of their sin, calling them to repent, opening their hearts for all to see so that they fall before our Heavenly Father and respond to him with faith. It's a delight. Fourthly, prophecy is a revelation. Speaking of the way that two or three prophets are to address the congregation, we read in verse 30, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. There is something revelatory that the speaker claims to come from God. And in this case, the revelation appears to be spontaneous. It appears to simply come to one of those who are sitting in the meeting. And when it comes, the second prophet is given the floor and the first prophet is given his seat. The second prophet can tell the body the details they've received, but we first must notice that, fifthly, the words of the prophet are in no way authoritative in their own right. Prophecy is certainly a gift from God. It's a gift that sees members of the body spontaneously equipped with revelations to others. But what is said, we're told, must be weighed. Not simply taken on board. Just because I claim to be a prophet and I say I have a revelation from God and I speak encouraging words does not mean that you ought to take my words on face value. You must weigh them. Look at verse 29. We're told, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. This makes New Testament prophets very, very different from Old Testament prophets. There was no real way in the Old Testament. Old Testament prophets says, said rather, thus says the Lord, and they spoke the very words of God, and those that they spoke to were expected to take their word as the very words of God. If their words were not true, if they didn't come to pass, they were to be stoned to death. The issue of authority was significant in the Old Testament. There is no suggestion that we should stone New Testament prophets to death. Make using the gift kind of risky anyway, wouldn't it? Those who claim to be prophets who weren't, as I said, were put to death. There is no hint, as I said, of such a sanction in 1 Corinthians 14. The New Testament prophets would have put their words forward and the body, you guys, would weigh them which implies that those with the gift of prophecy have revelations, yes, but those revelations might not come out right, may not come out clearly, may not come out as the words of God. And as the book of Acts makes clear, in the case of the prophet Agabus, right, Paul may have heard his words, and those words were words of warning, but they were words of warning that Paul appears to have disregarded. The words of Agabus were, don't go to Jerusalem, because if you do, terrible things will happen. Paul prayed with the Ephesian elders and went. Not only that, Agabus didn't actually get the details right. Agabus said that uh, Paul would be handed over to the Romans by the Jews. And yes, Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, but it was the Romans who arrested him. The Jews at that point were actually trying to kill him. He wasn't handed over. He was taken out of the Jewish hands. So even the prophet in the scriptures... In Acts 21, I think it is, 
didn't quite get the details right in ways that Old Testament prophets never fail. As we think about the authority of the prophets, Paul clearly sees that the authority of the apostles stands over the authority of the prophets. Look at verse 37. See the way that he wants those words to be weighed. He says, If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things that I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. He sees his words as an apostle very differently to the words of others. You want to think about my words? Raise the authority level. They are from God himself. Your prophecies, your other things, they need to be understood in the light of what I have said to you. My authority, the authority of the apostles, stands well above the authority of the prophet. Prophecy may be a revelation from God provided as a gift, but it's not to be considered as having divine authority. The gift, yes, comes from God, but the words may not. And even if they are from God, we know that they have authority because they line up with the words of Scripture rather than stand on their own two feet. And taking the issue of authority further, when Paul speaks to the Thessalonians in chapter 5 and verse 19, he comments this. He says, don't quench the spirit, don't despise prophecies, but, verse 21, test everything. Hold fast to what is good, and the implication is ditch the rest. Let me draw the threads together on prophecy. Prophecy may not be the words of the apostles. It may not carry the authority of scripture. But prophecy is a revelation. It's provided through the gift of God himself to his people. It is to be eagerly desired because it builds the church. It calls sinners to repentance and faith. And as such, prophecy isn't to be despised, but weighed, tested, and what is good, taken on board. Okay, with that in mind... How do we get these things working uh, in our churches? As we saw from the beginning, these gifts are to be used for the building up of others. Paul has some very specific commands about how they are then to be used within a local congregation. Look at verse 26. What then, brothers? When you come together, each, has, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. There's the principle. We've seen it again and again and again. So, verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there only be two, or at the most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. There is no free-for-all. It's not to dominate the meeting. The numbers are strictly limited, and there must be interpretation so that the gift can benefit others. And verse 28, if there is no one to interpret... Let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. No place for it. No interpretation, no place. Similar with prophecy. Verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. And I take it that weighing will be against the words I've already said of the apostles and the Old Testament prophets. 
those who have been accredited by the Lord himself. Again, it's not a free-for-all. Again, prophecy is not to dominate the meeting. It's only to be a small part of it. And order is very important. Prophecy is to be delivered in that orderly way. Verse 30, if a revelation is made to another, sitting there, let the first be silent. Prophet 1 is to stop mid-sentence and prophet 2 is to begin. He says, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. Oh, and by the way, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Don't use the excuse that I just couldn't stop myself. I was carried away by the spirit and couldn't blah, 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 stop. No, 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 no. God is a God of order. You cannot pull that fast one on me, Corinthians, and I won't let you pull it on others. Prophets are more than capable of controlling their speaking. They are not like the ecstatic prophets of the false religions around about. God is a God of order. This is a gift from the God of order, the God of peace. And that order will also affect the role that women will pay in weighing up the prophecies. Yeah, we're at that spot. Smile. Pray for me. I actually don't want to say much because uh, a lot of this Andrew will have covered uh, when you looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, and I want to suggest to you that what we're reading here is entirely consistent with what we look at in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let me read the verses for you. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. I just want to say a couple of things. Firstly, we've got to remember chapter 11, and we've got to remember chapter 14. Firstly, chapter 11. Remember that, that, that in chapter 11, it deals with congregational life, and Paul has absolutely no issue with women leading the congregation in praying and prophesying. There is no expectation here in this chapter or in chapter 11 that women cannot be prophets and cannot speak in this way. As long as they are appropriately expressing their submission to their husbands, their head. So it's inconceivable, I think, that Paul would suddenly go a few chapters later in chapter 14 to forbid a woman speaking. I don't think he's silencing them completely at all. He isn't suddenly forbidding them to lead in prayer. He's not sort of schizophrenic. Right? The word of God is consistent. So secondly, we've got to think about those verses in the context in which they come, chapter 14. I don't think Paul is going, let me talk to you about tongues and prophecy, tongues and prophecy, tongues and prophecy, tongues and prophecy. I'm just having this idea about women. Let me just talk to you about women for a minute. And then, oh, actually, now back to tongues and prophecy. I don't think that's what he's doing at all. I think that this fits perfectly with what he's already been saying. I believe that in the context, he's simply referring to women speaking or being involved in the weighing of prophecy, which I believe that the Bible would say is an issue of authority and therefore it ought to be handled by men. I think this is entirely consistent with what Paul teaches in 1 Timothy 2, where he says that women aren't to teach or to have authority over men, and I take it within the body. So I think all we have here is Paul saying, in that weighing process, that is actually a role for the men to play and not for the women. 
And if the women can't quite understand the weighing, why something's included or why not, ask their husbands at home rather than engage in a sort of a, as if the men and women are sitting differently, in a yelling match across the, uh, across the church itself. I think it's not misogynism. It's simply another example of the congregation of God, the, the body of Christ, being asked to order themselves appropriately with men exercising headship in issues of authority and women sitting happily under that leadership. Last point, point five. It wouldn't surprise me to know that within this congregation there are men and women uh, who speak in tongues, who have been given the gift. How are these gifts going to be used today at St Mary's? The answer is really, really simple. Just as Paul commanded. No other way. The scriptures make it very clear how these gifts are to be used. So, tongues will have little place in our corporate life unless there is someone who can interpret. And even if there is someone who can interpret, they'll still have a very limited place in our life together. If you've been given the gift of tongues and the gift of interpretation, tell Andrew. He's the one who puts a lot of our meetings together. He's the one who'll need to know. He's also the one who'll want to check out that you've actually got the gift uh, and deal with it appropriately. And then he'll want to encourage that gift, as 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 says, to be used appropriately within the body. It can be employed in small groups. It can be employed in large groups. It can be employed in a number of different ways. If you've been given the gift of speaking in tongues and there's no interpreter, delight, give thanks to God and use the gift at home. Use the gift that God has given you to build you up and encourage you. Give great thanks to him and pray that God will give you or somebody else the gift of interpretation so that that gift may then be used within the congregation. Use it to your heart's content at the top of your lungs. Prophecy. Let me say again, if you have this gift, again, come and talk to Andrew. Talk to him about it and explore with him how the gift may be used in a way that could be building up the body. There are a number of things that could happen. One way would be to tell uh, Andrew and a number of respected men within the congregation could over a period of time weigh your gift and see whether it's appropriate to use it and then begin to use it uh, in the congregation. Let me tell you about an experience, though, with a friend of mine, Graham. I was going to play the audio of a prophecy that was given to him, but the sound quality wasn't good enough uh, and it was with an English accent, so poor sound quality, English accent... uh, you wouldn't have understood a word. Uh, uh, Yagling pulled the plug. She went, and I trust her. Uh, a friend of mine, well, let me tell you about it, though, because I think it's helpful and instructive. A friend of mine, re- Graham, recently uh, went home to see his parents in England. Graham went home because his relationship with his fiancée had just broken up. Uh, his life was just in free fall and a mess. Uh, He went from Sydney where he lives down to Melbourne for a conference uh, and was a work conference. He was three days in one of those soulless hotel rooms in the city where you go out, you work all day, you come back and it looks the same as every other hotel room. And he just thought to myself, what am I doing here? What is life all about? It's just a mess. Got down on his knees and gave his life to Christ. He found himself praying, he said. And uh, he he said, "I I kept finding myself praying when things were going bad and then start things to start going good again, I'd forget about God. And he said, this time I realised I actually just needed to give in. So he became a Christian, went back to Sydney, 
took a plane to the UK to see his mum and dad, took a month off just to get life together. While he was there, he went to church with his parents. And at church, uh, there was a man who claimed to have the gift of prophecy. He called Graham out, spoke a prophecy to him, and those around him recorded it. And I wanted to play the recording, but it wasn't any good. What I was going to get us to do was actually weigh the prophecy and do what 1 Corinthians 15 uh, would say us, would tell us to do. If you listen to the words, if you didn't know it was prophecy, you would just think, here's an older bloke encouraging the younger bloke in his fate. It fitted perfectly, I think, with Paul's definition of prophecy. It was an upbuilding, encouraging and consoling word to a new convert whose life was about to get totally rearranged by Christ. He'd been living a fairly hedonistic, uh, godless life for the last probably 15 years. Uh, He hadn't been sexually faithful he hadn't been faithful in most of the areas that 20 to 30 year olds are today. You got the picture. Secondly, as we waited against the scriptures, the, the fellow who spoke said that Graham would undergo a process of renewal. Well, duh, he's just become a Christian. Right, of course he is. Right? God is going to turn his life not upside down, but right side up. He was told that this would be an uncomfortable time. Of course it is. When God disciplines his people, when he changes our lives, it's often uncomfortable, it's often difficult as God takes our life to pieces and puts it back together again properly. That's what Hebrews 12 tells us about God's disciplining hand. It's not pleasant at the time, but we grow to be more like Christ. He was told as well that he would discover his identity in Christ, which is absolutely true, isn't it? Instead of finding his identity in his job and who he is and what he did, He found his identity in who Christ is and what Christ has done for him and who he now is in his relationship with his Heavenly Father. The fourth thing he was told was that his purpose in life would only become clear once he worked out his identity, which is absolutely right. Only when you know that you're a disciple of Christ do you understand how career, marriage, family and everything else fits in as ways of serving our Lord and Saviour rather than the reason you're living So as we listened, it was remarkably biblical. It seemed remarkably ordinary. It was good, solid, biblical encouragement, consolation and building up of a new brother in Christ. What I wanted to go on and say, though, was I wanted you to think about the impact that it had on my friend Graham. Because these words had a significant impact and they caused problems. The reason why Graham shared it with me was he didn't know what to do with these words. As we chatted, the problem for me, and I think for him, was that these words that were spoken to him were becoming more and more important to him than the scriptures themselves. You see, these words felt incredibly personal. They were. They felt very immediate they were. They felt like they were just for him and they were. But they felt personal, immediate and just for him in his mind in a way that the scriptures aren't. And that's the problem. Because the scriptures are immensely personal to us 
because the spirit of the living God, as we heard in our first talk, takes the word of truth and writes it personally into our hearts. He convicts us of sin. He convinces us of the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection in our place. He shows us that we really are reconciled with God, that we really are children of God, that it is immensely personal being a spiritual person. The words of Scripture are immensely personal. They cannot be any more personal than that. The problem was that Graham was valuing a prophecy above the Scriptures and giving it an increasing authority beyond the Scriptures. He was falling very quickly into the problems that the Corinthians faced without ever having read 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. Friends, prophecy is a terrific gift. It was dangerous in the Corinthians' hands. It will be dangerous in our hands if we do not use it the way that the Scriptures speak to us about it. That's why chapter 12 comes before chapter 13, comes before chapter 14. We've got to get spirituality right, otherwise we will interpret prophecy as more spiritual than the word of God. We've got to see some of these so-called extraordinary gifts in their place, otherwise we will honour them and value them more than God speaking to us through his word and by his spirit. And when we do that, we will distort the whole work of the word and spirit together. Let me draw a few threads together and we have a few questions. Let me read to you from the end of the chapter and add a few words of my own. So, my brothers and sisters at SMAC, earnestly desire to prophesy, to build one another up, to encourage and console one another with the gift of prophecy. And don't forbid the speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. All things should be done in love to build up the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave his life for us. All things should be done in love to see us better understand the forgiveness, the redemption, the adoption, the reconciliation, the blameless status, the holiness and the uprightness that we now enjoy before our Lord and King, before our God and Father, before his throne forever. Our gracious God and our loving Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for these words. We want to thank you that you have spoken to us so clearly, so intimately, so personally through your word and by your spirit this weekend. Father, help us to take these words and to live them out. Help us not to be distracted by those who have misunderstood them, but to stand firm in the truth and continue to allow the word of God to shape us. And we pray this in Jesus' name.